0: here pray that you would teach we would listen let your spirit really guide and direct and help us just not to hear it to mark it to underline it but to live it and all we do and say in your name amen Amen. acts 22 just a quick reminder before we get in baptism next sunday 4 30 if you're interested in getting baptized please see me like get some information in your hand over at bill and shirley jones's uh located outside of deschler on hammondsburg road there right at the county line in hammondsburg it's where we've have our summer baptisms for the last few years um a lot of times people come up and ask questions about baptized. I was baptized as a baby. Should I be baptized as an adult? I was baptized years ago and I fell away. Should I be re-baptized? If you have any questions, if the Lord's stirring your heart in any way, come see me. Let's get a chance to talk about it and see where the Lord is leading. And even if you're not getting baptized, I encourage you just to come out and support those that are. It's a wonderful time of just food and fellowship and worship and just seeing people take that public step in their walk with the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. All right, Acts 22. Now, you heard me say this for the last couple of weeks Starting in Acts 21, it starts a story that goes on until the end of the book of Acts. It takes seven chapters, and it spans over two years, two to three years. It'd be great if we could do the whole story in one setting, and time does not allow us. So we kind of have to chop it up a little bit, which makes it difficult. So it's important to go back and kind of remind ourselves what happened. And the way this starts out is this. Paul is prophesied over that he's going to be bound in Jerusalem and been taken prisoner. So everybody's warning him to don't go. Paul stops and says, my life is not my life. My life is the Lord's. I've died to it, so therefore I am the Lord's. And if he wants to use this, let him use this. So Paul ends up going to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem as he goes into the temple. Accusations are made against him. The Jewish mob then wants to kill him and stone him. And that's what happens in Acts 21 because they believe that he did wrong things. They brought a, he brought a Gentile into the temple, which is not true. And you've got to remember, if you're Jewish, anybody that's a Gentile, which means they're not Jewish, that's a real big deal. So the Roman soldiers have to come and rescue Paul. And as they're rescuing Paul, Paul says, would you give me permission to speak to this mob? that was just trying to kill me and beat me. And so they give him permission, and that's what he does in Acts 22, is he shares his testimony, which is an amazing thing, is that he shares his testimony to the people that were just trying to kill him. That's how much he loved them. Well, now he ends his testimony in verse 21 with this, Then he, meaning Jesus, said to me, meaning Paul, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and that he should be examined under scourging, so that he may know why they shall sound sounded against him. They heard this word Gentiles, and it just set them off. You have to remember 2,000 years ago how much the Jews hated the Gentiles. They were an unclean people, they thought. They were not God's chosen people, and they were hated. In fact, some of the rabbis at the time used to teach that Gentiles were only created to be the fuel to keep the fires of hell burning. That's how much they hated the Gentiles. So the idea of the gospel going to us Gentiles, that was heresy. And so they wanted to kill him. Verse 22, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Please remember, that means they wanted to kill him. We don't even want this person walking the earth anymore. He's not fit to live. Tear their clothes, that's a sign of just sorrow. And they were just aghast at this. And then also the idea of throwing dust in the air. I don't know why they threw dust, so I did some research. And the one commentator said they threw dust because they couldn't find any stones. They wanted to try to stone him. They mentioned wanting to stone him, but they wasn't there. So you're kind of in this fit of rage and anger and you don't know what do, and you're throwing dust because you're just so worked up. Commander comes in verse 24, rescues him, and then this is good Roman rule for you in verse 24, we need to find out what's going on, so we're going to beat you until you tell us the truth. Now, that idea of scourging him in verse 24 doesn't give it enough justice of what that is. Your back would be laid open, they would take this whip, and they would just keep whipping your back with bits of metal or stone or stone until your back is laid open until you decide to tell them the truth. Or just tell them what they want to hear. And so that's what they're going to do to Paul. We're going to just beat this guy until he tells us what's really going on. Verse 25 is, And they bound him with thongs. Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those... We're about to examine him, withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. A few things you need to know, and we've talked about this in the past, so it should maybe review to you. There's two ways you could become a Roman citizen. The first way was to be born a Roman citizen. The next way is to either buy or bribe your way into a citizenship. Now, if you were born a Roman citizen, that carried a lot more weight. If you bought or bribed your way into a Roman citizen, yes, you were a citizen, but you really weren't born a citizen. Paul says, I was born a citizen. So we at least know his parents were Roman citizens, and that carried a lot of weight. Because according to Roman rule and law, you could not uh, bind a man, unjustly, if he was a Roman citizen, and you definitely could not scourge him and beat him. So by them even putting this guy there to attempt to scourge him, they're breaking some major laws, and the Roman citizenship was so protected, these soldiers would have been in a lot of trouble. So that's why they're backing off there in verse 29. Now you may stop and think, well then why wouldn't you just always say you're a Roman citizen? Because the Roman law also allowed you to be put to death for pretending to be a Roman citizen if you weren't a Roman citizen. So if you're quick on your feet and you say, okay, if I tell them I'm a Roman citizen and I can at least get out of this beating now, yeah, it's going to be a lot worse when they come back and find out that you weren't. That's why it's such a big deal for him to say he's a Roman citizen. And this opens up a lot. You may stop and read, why is this in here? Because if Paul wasn't, they would have beat this guy up. And that would have maybe been the end of it. But you got to remember that about 20, 25 years before this, in Acts chapter 9, when Paul meets Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Jesus prophesied and said, you will be my witness amongst kings and rulers. And this is what God is doing right now. He's going to send Paul on a two, three-year journey through the Roman court system. The first people he gets to witness to are the common folk at the temple. The next group he gets to witness to in Acts 23 is the Sanhedrin, the legal authority, which we'll get to that in a little bit. After that, he gets sent to Governor Felix. After that, he gets to talk to King Agrippa. And history teaches us that he went all the way to Caesar. God is saying, the reason I'm allowing this to happen, Paul, is for you to be a light and a witness to other people. Now, you've got to think a couple things here when you say this. First one, God's definition of good is different than your definition of good. So therefore, this is good. Paul gets to witness to a lot of people. Now, is what we would call good to possibly be beaten, to be attacked by mobs, to be in jail and prison for two to three years? It's not our definition of good, but God says this is good. What comes out of this? Well, for one, we know, like the book of Philippians comes out of this. And Paul says, hey, every time they chain me to a guard, guess what? He gets saved. So good is coming out of this. The whole palace guard is being saved because I am here chained to these people representing Christ. I get to talk to the mob at Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, Governor Felix, King Agrippa, and maybe even eventually Caesar. This is good. So just remember when things happen in your life that do not happen the way you want it to happen, you may not look at it as good, but God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are above your ways, and my thoughts are above your thoughts. God says, I'm working good even though you don't see it. Trust that. Number two, remember when you say, Lord, use me, what you're really saying. You're not saying, Lord, use me with stipulations and calls clauses. You're saying, Lord, use me for whatever purpose you want to use me for. And Paul was being used by the Lord. He said back in Acts 20 and 21, I'm dead. I've given my life completely over to the Lord. So, therefore, if this is how the Lord wants to use me, then to him be the glory and I'll be used by him. Paul is a great example of saying, I trust God's plan, I trust God's goodness, and I trust God's prophecy. Took 20, 25 years for this to happen. So that means the promises that God made to you are still true. It may now be years, decades later, and you're still saying, Lord, where's the good in this? God says, I'm still moving and working even when you don't see it. We've got to remember this as he goes through these two, three years of the court system. This is all God's plan for him to be a light and a witness. Verse 30, now the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So now he goes before the Sanhedrin. Once again, working his way through the system. Real quick, because I think it's important to understand a little bit of information. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish council court in Israel. Now, the Jews are a conquered people by Rome, but Rome allowed them to have this little court system. There's 71 people in the Sanhedrin. And these Sanhedrin, they were allowed to make some rules, some laws. They had their own police force. We see from the trial of Jesus, they're allowed to arrest people and do certain crimes. They didn't have the power to put somebody to death. That's why they go to Pilate. So they're allowed to take care of Paul and do to Paul what they think they need to do. And the Romans kind of let them have a little bit of power when it comes to this. So now Paul's arriving before these 71 people. And what is he going to do? He gets to witness again. Verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Men and brethren... Paul used to be a part of this group. We know later on in the book of Acts, he said he actually voted with these people on things. We know he was at the stoning of Stephen. It's quite possible that these people, some of them 20, 25 years later, Paul actually served with. That's why he can say in verse 1, men and brethren, I am a Jew. I used to be a part of this group. And he's getting ready to start right into his testimony. I used to be where you're at, and now let me tell you what Jesus Christ did. But before he can get into it, verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. There's a lot in these verses. A lot in these verses. First off, Ananias there's a few Ananias mentioned in the Bible. This is the high priest Ananias. History teaches us that this man was violent, prideful, and greedy. About 10 years, 15 years after this, there's going to be a war in Jerusalem where the Jews are kind of revolting against Rome. And in the midst of this war, the Jews are so fed up with this guy, they go and kill him themselves. Now, at this time, he has a position of authority, and we're starting to see his violence, his pride, and his greediness. It's not full yet to the Jews, but eventually this man will be killed by his own people. So, he hits Paul, or has him commanded to be struck Paul. And Paul's response is, why do you do this contrary to the law? A few points on this. Deuteronomy 25 lays out the rules on how you're allowed to legally, religiously beat somebody. Now, that's the way the Jews did it. And one of the things that the Jews had is you're not allowed to hit people in the face. That was kind of a big deal. And it was ordained and decided to not let it get out of hand. And this is the chastisement and punishment that was supposed to be. So Paul being hit in the face is completely against the law. And Paul calls him out on that and says, you can't do this. This is wrong. And he's basically saying in verse 3, you're judging me because you're saying I broke the law. And here you are breaking the law yourself. And then they come back and said, "How dare you say that to the high priest?" Now there's three points we're going to make on this, and you're not going to like the first one, so we' we'll just get that one right over with right now. Verse five: "You should not speak evil over the ruler of your people. Go with me to Titus chapter three, please. Titus three. There are certain sins in the body of Christ that we just all kind of accept. And we just kind of basically say, okay, yeah, I know it's wrong, but this one's allowed. I first ran into this uh, back in 1996. I got saved in 93. Got saved when I was a junior in high school. At the time, didn't really follow, think too much about politics, et cetera. And then in 96, it was uh, the first presidential election that I was allowed to uh, vote in, and it was a dole going up against Clinton. And so here I am, I've been coming out to the church for two, three years and you know, really starting to know people, get to know people, et cetera. Don and I just got married that year, and just starting to become a, a young adult, I guess, if you will. And so what happens is at this election of Dole versus Clinton, I hear these people that I've been worshiping with now for two to three years start saying the most awful evil things about people. They just it did. And I used to think, okay, that's not that okay, that was kind of strange. And then I started noticing There's a four-year cycle of evilness. Because in 2000, I started seeing and hearing people say really awful, evil things. Then in 2004, I heard it. Then in 2008, I heard it. In 2012, I heard it. In 2016, I hear it. And it's just an awful thing sometimes. I can remember at the first election with Obama, when Obama got elected... um, I was contacted through a vast email of things, not necessarily to me personally, but it was sent to a bunch of us. And somebody said that they were praying for him to get an aneurysm and die. And I just stopped and I thought, wait a second here. Listen, we may not agree with all his policies. We may not agree with the direction. This man is a husband. This man is a father of two kids. Speak evil of no one. Look at Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. That's a tough verse, but that's right in there, folks. To speak evil of no one. And it's not only in the governing authorities, it's also just in life. It goes with talking about your boss, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, your Sunday school teacher, the policeman along the way. It goes with anybody to speak evil of no one. Now, the problem with this is there's clauses to this to speak evil of no one publicly. Because privately, behind closed doors, we're allowed to know to speak evil of no one. I have found the person I need to be the most careful with who I speak with is my wife. Because behind closed doors, and it's just us talking, things that maybe opinions we would state and things that we would say that we would not say publicly, all of a sudden it's just us. And it's like, well, what do you really think? And the next thing you know, we're saying a whole lot of things about people we shouldn't be saying. And there's been times where Dawn and I have had to stop and say, listen, we just need to quit talking to each other. Not for other issues, but just because we start thinking we're allowed to say whatever we want to each other. and I, you know this is not going to go good because it's going to speak evil of people. And you're around it, I'm around it, where you're having a conversation with somebody and they start telling a story about someone and next thing you know, it's just getting downright evil. Now, why don't we just stop it? You know a great way to stop it? Boy, that person, that sounds like it's a tough one. We should pray for that person right now. That really stops it real quick. Luke 6 says to pray for your enemies, to to pray for those who despitefully use you, to pray for those that hate you. You can't pray for somebody and hate them at the same time. It's pretty hard to do. Why don't we like to do it? Well, Proverbs has two little verses on this. First on gossip, they said, is like adding more logs to the fire. And once you get one other person to listen to you, it's like another log and we just keep adding more logs. Proverbs also teaches us that gossip is like a tasty little piece of chocolate. You just want one more. And we as believers need to stop and say, it says in verse 2, to speak evil of no one. Now, does that mean I'm not allowed to state a, a fact about the direction that I feel the government's going or the policies of something? No, if those things are biblically wrong, we're allowed to state it. But you've got to remember in Ephesians six twelve, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the principalities and powers of this world. They are not the enemy. The enemy may be using them, but they are not the enemy. They are probably somebody who is not saved in Jesus Christ, and we need to see them come to know Christ. See, take a look at what Titus, excuse me, Paul says to Titus in verse 3: For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He says, That was us, guys. The people were speaking evil of we used to act the same way. Verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of our God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He goes, They're not saved, and guess what? Nonbelievers act like nonbelievers. You can't expect a non-believer to act like a believer. They don't have that Holy Spirit living inside of them moral standard. So therefore, when I look at the world and I want to speak evil of the world, what am I really speaking evil of? Someone who's not saved and they really need to come know Jesus Christ. Does that mean I'm not allowed to speak up against policies and directions? No, I'm allowed to. But that person, I really need to pray for them. What about somebody who claims to be a Christian? Well, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize how many people claim to be Christians. There's a whole lot of parable about whether people are really saved or not, and sometimes I don't know. There's Baxlin believers, there's carnal believers, there's lukewarm. If they're not right with the Lord, then I really just need to pray for them as well, too, that they really have a depth and relationship with who Jesus Christ is. But you know what? Speaking evil of them, it's not going to do any good. There may be that momentary flesh where I feel better, but really what it comes down to is I'm really just attacking someone who's probably on the path to hell. And what matters most is their soul being saved. So please remember that when it comes to conversations with people, conversations with your spouse, before you post something online, before you send an email, before you do anything. Is this really the way I want to represent Jesus Christ? We've got to be careful about that. And I see Paul, who just got smacked in the mouth unlawfully, he backs up and says, sorry, didn't know I was the high priest, I shouldn't have done that. Now, Paul did pretty good with this. But guess what? Paul didn't die on the cross for my sins. Jesus did. Let's see how Jesus handled this. Go to John 18. Because I like it when Paul says, you whitewashed wall. I'm going to use that sometime. That's just a great, great line. Okay, how did Jesus handle the nearly identical situation? Nearly identical. John 18, verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered them, I spoke openly to the world, I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet and in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? Almost the exact same situation. So Jesus comes back and says, you whitewashed wall. No, 23. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Jesus didn't make it, take it personal. Jesus didn't speak evil. He stopped and said, listen, if I'd said something evil, then i said something evil. But if I didn't, why are you doing this? What an example that is. Paul is a great example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what he said. He's a great example of, you know what? I shouldn't have said that of the high priest. I'm sorry. And you know what? Verse 3, what I said was probably true and is probably true. But I still shouldn't have said it. Jesus is the best example of being unlawfully attacked, And Jesus says, why are you doing this? If I'm evil, then judge me. If not, let it go. We can learn a lot when we are attacked personally of learning how just to sometimes let it go and realize what matters most in the whole scheme of heaven and hell are souls saved. I had a situation recently where someone contacted me with a situation, and it was a frustrating situation for them, and... As they were kind of talking to me about it, they were getting worked up, and understandably worked up here and there. And then it kind of reached a point of like, okay, we're, now we're, we're blowing this one out of proportion here. And I have a really good relationship with this person, and we can speak very openly, very honestly with them. And I stopped and I asked him, as they're kind of venting about this situation, I stopped and said, hold on a second here. I said, what, what's your neighbor's name? And we'll just pick a name. And he said, neighbor's name is Fred. I said, okay, is Fred saved? And he goes, uh, no, I don't think Fred's saved. I said, you care more about this worldly situation than you care about the eternal destination of your neighbor. I said, what would happen if you take this passion that you have towards this worldly situation where you feel like you were offended that really doesn't matter in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, and you say, I'm going to take that passion now and praying and fasting and being a witness to my unsaved neighbor who's going to hell. What would happen if we would do that? We would let go of earthly things. We always sing about it and really stop and say, what matters most are souls being saved. Paul is unlawfully hit, and God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Jesus is unlawfully hit. He says, am I doing something wrong? (laughs) Am I doing evil? Let's have that mindset of stopping and saying, we're going to get offended. We're going to get hurt. But what matters most is eternity. We sometimes just got to let things go. So let's talk about what Paul said, though. Verse 3, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do command me to be struck contrary to law. Ananias was a hypocrite Time revealed that Like I said He's described as violent Prideful Greedy This whitewashed wall Is used another place too In Matthew chapter 23 When Jesus was describing The Pharisees and the Sadducees He called them whitewashed Whitewashed carries this idea Of that this wall Or this even tombstone Is completely dirty And I just slap a coat Of white paint on it And guess what It looks a whole lot better I didn't clean it up I didn't make it any better I just made it look better We spend a lot of time making the cemeteries around us look really pretty. Very well landscaped, very well manicured. And what they're really covering is death and decay. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 23. He goes, you look really good on the outside priests. You got the clothes down, you got the ornaments down, you just look really great. And inside you're really dead, decaying, spiritually dead. And the same thing still happens today. You know, I use this analogy a lot. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that just said it the first time. A broken clock tells the right time twice a day. And if you only see the clock at that moment, they look good. And how many of us spiritually come in and we are whitewashed? We, we put a smile on our face. We make sure everything looks good and we just fake it for an hour. And then throughout the rest of the week, we're really dead decaying. And I don't say this to attack. I just say this. I really think sometimes we need to ask ourselves these questions. The more I read through the Gospels, the more I realize how often Jesus is really using these parables of, listen, you think you're right, but you're not right. Paul, test yourself to see if you're a Christian because things aren't right. And I think it's good for us to stop every now and then and say, am I whitewashed? Am I just kind of faking it? I mean, I look good. No one really questions anything because I show up for the hour and I make it sound good. I serve here and there a little bit. I do a little bit of this and that. But am I really where I'm supposed to be spiritually? Because if I'm not, it's just hypocrisy. And the word hypocrite literally means two-faced. I know what face to put on at church. And then I can go be me throughout the week. I'm not saying this to attack, I'm not saying this to condemn, I'm just saying, let's really ask ourselves these questions. Because I want us to be real, and I want us to have a real, sincere faith. So, Paul then says in verse 5, Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that it was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil over rule of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. And then there rose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and bring him into the barracks. Sanhedrin, once again, is 71 people. They are the court council in Israel. They are the governing authority. They had Pharisees and Sadducees on them. Real quick breakdown on this. We try to do this every now and then. Just as you read through the Gospels, you'll see these names a lot. Uh, Sadducees, nothing spiritual. They don't care about resurrection. They don't care about life after death. They don't care about angels. They were upper class. They were the minority in numbers, but they held all the authority and all the power. So held all the authority and power, had the minority in numbers, and really nothing spiritual. And and we say this, and I don't know where I first heard it, but they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in eternal life. It's a good way to remember that. The Pharisees were spiritual, too spiritual, if you will. They were legalistic. They did believe in the afterlife, but the problem is they based their relationship with God on legalism, of following the law. They had the numbers. They were the power of the people, but the problem is they did not have the authority. And so there's always a battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul stops and says, I know i got a split crowd here. So some of them aren't going to accept the resurrection of the dead. But guess what? Verse 6, I know some of them could. And so I'm going to throw this out there and see where God takes it. Because at least I can start preaching to some of them. Well, he throws it out there. They get into a battle. Next thing you know, in verse 10, Paul is saved by the Roman government a second time. It's because they're about to kill him again. Now think about if you're in Paul's position. You knew the prophecies were coming. You knew it. That they were going to be bound and you're going to be taken to Jerusalem. You knew it. You knew what he said twenty, twenty-five years ago that you're going to be a witness to kings. But did he really think this? That he was going to preach in the temple court and they were going to try to kill him? Then he was going to go to the Sanhedrin and they were going to try to kill him? I mean, is discouragement setting in? I mean, have you ever had that where you thought you were right spiritually? Like, Lord, I prayed over this. I sought you over this. this. This is what I thought you wanted me to do. And this just keeps blowing up in my face. So guess what happens? Verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. God always shows up at the right time. He always does. Verse 11, when does he show up? He shows up at night in your time of darkness. That's when he shows up. If you're going through a time of darkness right now, the Lord is with you. He is there. Careful of the word feeling. Well, I don't feel it. Aren't you glad your relationship with Christ is not based on feelings? Your relationship with Christ is based on what Jesus did on the cross. That's why he said it is finished. There's going to be times in your life you don't feel close to the Lord. But he's still there. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You've got to remember that. Why did Jesus show up at Paul in prison? Because obviously Paul was not of good cheer. This is just such a simple point, I think we forget it. No, Paul went to prison and he just rejoiced that he had a great chance to witness to the Sanhedrin. And he was thankful that he almost got ripped in two. No, obviously Paul is sitting in prison kind of getting worked up because why else would Jesus show up to say be of good cheer so he shows up at night in your darkness and the Lord will always show up in your time of darkness he is faithful and guess what he'll do in verse 11 he'll stand right by you stood by him he wants to be close to you I think we forget this very simplistic point God left heaven to come be with us on earth he's God he could have thought of another way to do it he could have But the best way for him to take care of our sins, because there is no other way, was for him to come and say, I'm going to become a human, come down and live as a human, die as a human, rise again as a human, but yet be God at the same time and take care of their sins. We don't think it's that big a deal because we look at each other as humans and say we're really not that gross. Comparing us to the majesty and the glory of God in heaven, it's a really big deal for the Lord to empty himself from heaven to come down. And he came down and he says, guess what? I want you guys to come back with me now. That's the beauty of this. So Jesus comes and stands beside Paul. Understand in your moments and times of darkness, the Lord is really right there. Careful of that word, feel. I don't feel it. Well, you're not forsaken, though he's there. And what does he tell you? Be of good cheer. Some of your translations, take courage. Be of good cheer is a really interesting word in the Greek. It is one word. We look at it as be of good cheer. It's literally one word. And Jesus uses it five different times. And we're running out of time here, so I'm not going to have you turn there. I'm just going to go through them with you. And I want you to apply them to whatever darkness you're going through in life right now. Be of good cheer. It's one word in the Greek. First one, Matthew 9, 2. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. Matthew 9, verse 2. This is where Jesus is talking to the man that is bedridden, that's paralyzed. He comes and says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, that should be enough right there, folks. Now, I'm going to be speak honestly and say that sometimes for me, I want more. But that should be enough. Your sins are forgiven. You are on a path to hell. Your sins have been forgiven, and now you get to go to heaven. That should be enough for you to be of good cheer and take courage. I do not have to spend eternity in hell. I get to spend eternity in heaven through what Jesus Christ did for me. And that should put a smile on my face with no matter what I'm dealing with. So be of good cheer. Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. That's a great one. Here's the one we struggle with. Jesus talking to the woman that had the 12-year bleeding problem. This is in Matthew Matthew 9.22. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now, some of you may say, okay, well, this is the one I have an issue with. My health is not well. My faith has not made me well. So how am I supposed to take courage in this? Let me just kind of talk to you a little bit about this. And this is a difficult one because if you're here this morning and you're struggling with the health issue, that's hard. What is your definition of a well? What is your definition of good health? Because I've noticed that the Lord has a different definition sometimes than I do of good health and of well. See, God does say you will be well, and he does say you will be in good health. In fact, he says in Revelation, there will be no more pain, no more death, no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow. I like that. That's eternity. The problem is we want eternal health right now. Bible says, nope, this is not where you get your eternal health. This is where you live in a tent. Remember, Paul said, you're living in a tent. Now, the problem with the tent analogy is this. We're, we're in the middle of June, and tents right now are kind of fun, right? You get to go out in tent. And you get to make the idea of the little campfire, and you're going to sleep in the tent. And I love camping, and this is a camping season, and people talk about, oh, I love camping. But you don't want to go camping in January. In January, you want your house with insulation and heat, And the television and lights. But in the summer, tents sounds fun. See, there are seasons in your life where having a tent is not that bad. I'm in pretty decent health. I feel good. I can move. And then as life goes on, you realize I don't really want to live in a tent for the rest of my life. If you'd go to my youngest right now, Tyrus, who's six, and say, Tyrus, guess what? We're selling our house. We're gonna live in a tent. Oh, he would be thrilled. He would be just... That would be the happiest little guy in the world. He would be excited because he goes out in the backyard and he makes his little houses and he always wants to sleep out there. The six-year-old would love to live in a tent for the rest of their life. I'm 41. I never want to step foot in a tent for the rest of my life. I never need to be in a tent. I will wait for the, the house. That's my idea. So when you're in good health, the idea of a tent doesn't sound bad. The longer you walk on this earth, the closer you get to eternity... You don't want to live in the tent. You're ready for the full health that is promised to you. So when he says, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well, and you say, well, that's not true. It is true. The timing of when your faith has made you well may be a little different for everybody. Some people we know are already in heaven. Their faith has made them well. Some people on this earth get a miraculous healing. Amen. But guess what? They're still in a tent. God says, take heart, be of good cheer, take courage. You're going to be in perfect health, and you're going to be fine. Matthew fourteen twenty seven. Matthew fourteen twenty seven. This is when the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. They are scared. Jesus shows up. Be of good cheer, it is I do not be afraid. That one's so straightforward. There's nothing we need to be afraid of. Nothing. We serve the God, if you were with us uh, Wednesday night, we serve the God that can stop the earth from spinning. We serve the God that can cross the Jordan. We can serve the God that can create the world in six days. We serve a God that can rise from the dead. So be of good cheer as I do not be afraid. Whatever you're facing right now that's bringing fear into your life pales in comparison to the power of the God you serve. So take courage. Amen. John 16:33. The night before Jesus was crucified. John 16:33. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So when you watch the news and the world is falling apart, God says, yeah, don't worry. When your job is falling apart, yeah, don't worry, I've overcome the world. When the finances aren't there, don't worry, I've overcome the world. Take courage. Be of good cheer. See, it's all there. And then the last one right here with Paul, be of good cheer. I'm right here beside you, Paul, in the middle of the darkness. So if you're facing sin, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Facing health, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Facing fear, be of good cheer. It's I, do not be afraid. You're facing trouble. You are overwhelmed in this world. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It's the middle of the darkness and you don't even know what to do. Be of good cheer. I'm standing right beside you. The problem with this is, it is so straightforward and so simple, the application becomes difficult. And I really think sometimes this is where we need to have the childlike faith. My sins, my health, my fear, my trouble, my worries are all taken care of through Jesus Christ. The question is, do I believe that? Do I apply that? Be of good cheer. Now, one other point about this before we close up. Be of good cheer, Paul. For you have testified for me in Jerusalem, and so we must also bear witness at Rome. Hey, Paul, step one done. Good job. Now it's time for step two. Step one, you were a witness for me in Jerusalem. You handled the mob. Amen. You handled the Sanhedrin. Amen. Guess what? Uh, Governor Felix coming up, and then we got King Agrippa, and I think I'm taking you all the way to Caesar. You did step one. Can you do step two? See, the problem with us is we complete step one, and we're like, Lord, get me off this boat as soon as I possibly can. God says, stay on for the ride. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Take courage. Be of good cheer. You're being a witness. You're representing me for all of eternity. And I tell you guys, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize if we could just let go of this world, and I know it's hard, I know it's hard, but if we could let go of this world and really just think about eternity, how much different would our life be? If you're like me, I want you to think of the last thing that actually got you really worked up. Okay, I'm willing to bet it didn't have too much to do with eternity. It may have had a glimpse of eternity. It may have had something to do spiritual. But did it really have anything to do with eternity? Probably not. The things that I really get worked up are really just a shadow of something on this world that the enemy uses and I allow him to use to just bring me and my marriage and my wife and my kids down. It's like, oh, Lord, forgive me. Help me. Help me to really think about eternity. We spend so much time And the Bible says you get about 70 years on this earth. Some of you are in overtime, but we get about 70 years on this earth. And so in that time period, we spend all of our time and energy we can to make ourselves as comfortable as possible when really the Lord says this time on this earth is to invest into eternity. Eternity. And when you really stop and you think about it, Why am I allowing myself to get worked up on this earth? Why am I investing in treasure on this earth where moth and rust will corrupt when really I want to invest in eternity? Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You can't get much better than that. So I hope that whatever darkness you're facing here today, you realize God's presence. He's standing beside you, He's there with you at night, and He's telling you, be of good cheer, and He's telling you, finish the task. You've testified in me in in, uh, Jerusalem, great. Now let's go on to Rome and be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Worship team, if you come forward. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live this. Not just talk about it, but live it. And when the world comes at us and it brings us down, help us to cut those roots and just keep an eternal focus. Set our mind on heavenly things. That is so difficult, Lord. And when we're around people that are getting caught up on earthly things, help us to have enough love, grace, mercy, and compassion to point them lovingly towards eternity. Thank you. We want to be of good cheer in you. And Lord, also just kids going to camp, physical safety, but spiritual growth. Baptism a week from today. Lord, those souls that you just want to make that public stance for you. Just reveal that, Lord, and we want to encourage them and uplift them in this step in their faith in you. Thank you. Help us to live it, Lord, not just talk about it, but live it in your name. Amen.